Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening in our study of the word, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus and study God's word and to concentrate for the next uh, hour or so. Let's, uh, I'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're so thankful we can be here to be encouraged by your word, to study the things that you have revealed through the ages, starting in the Old Testament, through various prophets, especially through Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, and then bringing them to a conclusion in what we have in the Revelation to John. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and not just see them as something that happens in the a distant future unconnected to our own life, but one that uh, as we understand these things, it helps us to better understand the scope of history and our role within history and to see that you are indeed in control of the uh, movements of nations, the rise and fall of nations and kingdoms, and that you are working things to a specific end. So, Father, as we study this, may our faith and trust in you be strengthened and may May we relax as we see various uh, things that threaten stability, st- security, and safety on our own horizon in our own day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm still fighting a little of the congestion, but it is much better than it was on Sunday, as long as I don't blow out my vocal cords this morning. Or this evening. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel 7, verse 7. We stopped last time after verse 6. And <clears throat> I'll just go through a little brief review and uh, introduction. We're actually studying the book of Revelation, but so much in Revelation is com- comes out of Daniel. In fact, this little review that I've gone into, going back into Daniel 7 and 8, and 11 has reinforced in my own thinking how critical it is to properly understand Daniel and have that as a background before you ever even start studying in, uh, in the book of Revelation because there are even some verses we'll see uh, tonight or next week that are almost identical in between the two, uh, the two prophecies. So we came in our study of Revelation to Revelation chapter 13, which introduces us to two more key personages in the tribulation period, the person known as the Antichrist and his religious leader, second-hand man, so to speak, uh, the false prophet. They're identified in Revelation 13 as the first beast and the second beast. And in Revelation 13:1, we read the we see the imagery of the beast uh, in, in terms that are very similar to what we have in Daniel 7. John writes, I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now, that's very similar to what Daniel saw in his night vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, where he saw four beasts coming up out of the sea. And they are connected because the four beasts represent the four different stages or four different kingdoms in the kingdom of man. And what we're, what John is seeing is the final stage, what really is the fourth beast that, uh, the final form of the fourth beast that, that Daniel saw. And this is clear in verse two. 
where we see that the beast was, which I saw, that is John, was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his authority. Now we learn, learned in chapter 12, that the dragon is Satan. So Satan energizes, empowers the first beast, the Antichrist. He is the one who provides him with his, with his power, his authority, his kingdom. So Satan is the one who has engineered history to bring this about. Now, God is still in control, even though Satan is bringing this into, into existence in history. Satan never does it apart from the authority of God. Okay, so the dragon gives him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, the interesting thing that we have to remember is that Satan is no more aware of when the rapture is going to occur than you and I are. Or than Jesus was when his disciples said, when will these things be? And Jesus says, not given for me to know, it is only for my Father to know. And he's speaking from his humanity there because it, in his humanity, in his role as the Son of Man, it wasn't for him to know when it would happen. He was to wait for the Father to uh, bring it to pass. So it's a, it's a waiting time. The, the church age is a waiting time. The Son is seated at the right hand of the Father waiting for the distribution of the kingdom, which is what we'll see probably not until next week in Daniel chapter 7 with the uh, Ancient of Days giving the kingdom uh, to the Son of Man. That is such, a, such an important, uh, important passage. So Satan never knows. So that means in any given generation, in any given decade, Satan has to be working to be able to move at almost a moment's notice to be able to put his man into play and into power in such a way that he can he can uh, uh, engineer the rise of the uh, of his final kingdom, the, the ten nation confederacy. So that's why people can always think that so and so could be the antichrist. And it is possible that if that had been the time when the rapture occurred, then that individual, whether it was Napoleon or Bismarck or or um, Hitler or Saddam Hussein, whoever the big bad bully guy is of that generation, it could always be that person. And so Satan's always ready. And and what's interesting there is, and I keep thinking about as I go through this study, is that that means that just as John said there are many antichrists, we can see these characteristics of the kind of leader that the, that, um, that Satan is going to use, what characterizes worldly leadership or cosmic system leadership in contrast to the kind of leadership that we'll see displayed by the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his, his righteousness. And this final kingdom is going to borrow elements that were characteristic of these earlier beastly kingdoms. The beast is like a leopard. There is something about the leopard that was used when it depicted Greece, and it has to do with speed. Uh, it has to do with the swiftness of its development. And so one of the things that we'll see in the end times, we won't be there to see it, we'll be perhaps watching from heaven, is the speed with which the Antichrist pulls his kingdom together. And one of the things that I've noticed over the last 10 or 15 years, I don't know, I think most of you have noticed as well, is how quickly things move today, how quickly things change, how, how the, the chessboard of the nations can move very, very rapidly, and how quickly it can be that even uh, a nation like the United States is observed in an article in the English version of Pravda, the Pravda newspapers, Pravda means truth in Russian, which was such a you know, such a little oxymoron there is because that was really the the newspaper for the Communist Party. But there was an article in English in the Pravda, in the edition of Pravda this last week, uh, where and the headline stated how uh, quickly America has slipped into Marxism. Interesting observation. You know, the, 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 I know I have a 
young man, went to Pine Valley for a while while he was here getting his Ph.D. in economics at U of H, who came out of Jim Meyer's church at, uh, over in Kiev. Bright, bright young man. He's now working uh, for a, a financial firm up in the Boston area. Some of you uh, know him. His name is Sergey, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. But Sergey has a uh, hypersensitivity towards Marxism that is born out of his many years of exposure to it. And when he came to the United States, he was just amazed at how close we were to full-blown Marxism in the U.S., And we didn't even know it because we have entered into these stages so slowly and so gradually. You know, it's the old story of uh, uh, putting the uh, frog in the cold water and just gradually increasing the temperature until he boils to death. That that we have just seen since, since the 1920s, we have seen government policies become more and more socialistic so that once you reach a real tipping point, you can just slide very quickly into socialism, and you call everything free market and capitalism, and it actually isn't anymore because there's just way too much government involvement, and there's no real free uh, enterprise or un- unrestrained enterprise anymore. And so when you have, uh, and that's just an example of how quickly things can change and how quickly things uh, things can move. So you have the leopard, and then the next thing is the feet of a bear, and I'm not quite sure exactly uh, why we have that, except in the picture of the bear in Daniel chapter 7, the bear is given to, to conquer, to make conquests. And, of course, one of the first things you have under the seal judgments in Revelation chapter 6 is that the uh, Antichrist, the one who is riding on a white horse, and is going forth uh, to uh, conquering and to conquer. So that indicates that, that the speed as well as the, the fact of conquest. And then the last one has to do with the mouth. Notice how the text says his mouth like the mouth of a lion. There are a lot of things you may think of when you think of a lion, um, and, and his mouth may not be one of them. But, but when you think about this, the emphasis there is on his teeth. When we go back and we look at what will be said about the about the, the, this monstrous fourth beast in Daniel 7, he has teeth like iron. That's the emphasis is on his teeth and the destructiveness of those, those teeth in his, in his conquest. And so that seems to be the idea is that certain elements of these previous kingdoms, not limited to just those factors that I've, that I've mentioned, but I think many others, were brought in, and so the best of what these human kingdoms produced are going to all be manifest and play a very important role in the final form of the, of the kingdom of man. And so we are looking at these beastly kingdoms in Daniel 7 in order to get that uh, background and understanding, and we've seen the connection between the statue in Daniel 2 that indicate the, uh, the flow of these major empires, Babylon and then the Medo-Persian Empire represented by the bear, the lopsided bear, and then Greece represented by the four-winged, four-headed leopard, and then the final uh, indescribable uh, beast that has the ten horns, which is Rome. And we've seen that there are these parallels between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, and we ju- that just traces the kingdom of man. But then there's this pause that occurs, and Rome just sort of seems to, to end and dissipate. The Western Empire ends in 476. The Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, uh, uh, Byzantium or modern Istanbul wasn't conquered until 1451, May the, what was that, May the 20th, no, 30th, 29th, something like that. Um, so we just celebrated the anniversary of the fall of, of Byzantium, which is the collapse of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. And then it, but Western Europe is so much a part of the heritage of Rome, and then it's going to come back, and we'll see the second part of the Roman Empire in its final form, in its hostility towards God. So that's the background. The beasts begin to be described in verse three of Daniel seven. And these four beasts are said to be four kingdoms, kings or kingdoms, the terms used interchangeably, which arise from the 
from the earth. These are these kingdoms of man. The first is the uh, winged lion representing um, uh, Babylon. And then that's comparable to the head of gold on the statue and the extent of the Babylonian Empire, primarily in the area of the Middle East, what we now know of as Iraq, Syria, Jordan, a little bit in modern Turkey, uh, some down into Egypt. And then that kingdom is replaced by the lopsided bear who represents the uh, combined kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians were more dominant. That's why he's a lopsided bear. And he is to devour much meat. That's his conquest. And so we also correlated that with uh, the information in chapter 8 where the kingdom is represented by the two-horned ram, one horn higher than the other, indicating the same thing, the imbalance of power between the Medes and the Persians, Persians being the more, uh, the more dominant. And it's clearly stated in Daniel 8 that this represents the Medes and the Persians. And so the Persian Empire is much broader, much wider, much larger than the one that preceded it, the uh, Chaldean or the Neo-Babylonian Empire, extending all the way from India in the east, uh, taking in modern uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, some of the Ikistans, not, not uh, Kazakhstan, but probably Kyrgyzstan, uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Turkmenistan are all would be part of that empire and extending down a broader broader control of Egypt and Libya and taking in all of, of uh, modern Turkey all the way over into Macedonia and uh, part of the Greek peninsula. So that represented the media, uh, media, media Persian Empire. And then we have the uh, four-winged, four-headed leopard, and the four wings represent the speed of conquest for major battles that uh, Ale- characterize Alexander's campaign as he established the boundaries, the borders of the uh, of the empire battles at Granicus and Isis in Turkey and Arbella. Uh, further into the area now would be Syria and then India. And then when he died, the kingdom was separated or divided between four of his generals, Ptolemy in the south, Egypt, Seleucus in the north, Syria and Turkey, Antigonus in the west, uh, Persia, and Lysimachus got the east. They battled among themselves, and over the next hundred years, those boundaries changed uh, quite a lot. But this is the uh, depiction of the extent of the Greek empire, and it was much broader than any of the empires that had gone before. One thing you should notice is there's a shift in location. Notice in these three kingdoms, the center of gravity has been where? It's been over in Bab- the area of Babylon, Iraq, Persia, and it's been in the Middle East. But the center of gravity shifts with the rise of Rome and shifts west to Western, uh, Western Europe. So the first three Kingdoms we followed are Babylon, the Media Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire, and the Greek Empire covered quite a large area, uh, larger than the others, as I pointed out. Now I'm going to skip over this. Now we come to our fourth one, which is Rome. Rome is depicted in Daniel chapter 7 as this indescribable beast that is different from all of the other beasts. And so here we have a map of Rome, and you can see it has shifted considerably uh, to the west. It extends as far west as Spain and up into uh, Britain, uh, modern France, uh, different areas around uh, uh, the Alps, uh, Yugoslavia, down the, uh, to the Greeks, of course, the Italian peninsula. But notice also that there are inroads and territories that's controlled in northern Africa in nations that are currently under, uh, under Muslim control. You have uh, areas in uh, um, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, 
uh, all along the northern coast of Africa, the Mediterranean coast, and then along the Levant where Israel is located, Israel, Lebanon, and on up to Turkey. But also there is, now the purple there only indicates, according to the legend of the map, territory that was temporarily annexed by Rome. So they didn't have full control of that territory, and that would cover most of what we see as uh, uh, modern Iraq, there where we see Mesopotamia, south of Edessa. That really was only nominally under their control for a very short time. That was really the center of the Parthian Empire. And the Parthian, Parthians never really gave up a lot of territory to, uh, to Rome. They were always um, uh, antagonistic to one another. And then there's some purple shading up in the area in the northeastern part of Turkey, up towards the Caucasus Mountains. This is where Armenia is located today, Turkmenistan, um, Georgia, where a lot of the fighting was going on uh, last summer in Georgia. So much of that area, of course, today is also under Muslim control. And the reason I point that out is because there are, uh, now it's becoming more and more you're hearing of people saying that when the uh, in the revived Roman Empire, going back to the image with Daniel and the two legs, uh, saying, stating that the two legs indicate the split of the Roman Empire between the eastern branch and the western branch, and then the ten toes you have represent the ten nations, five in the west, five in the east, and the and the argument that's put out is that this means that that at least half of the the revived Roman Empire is going to come out of the east, which are uh, Muslim nations. And that there is uh, the Antichrist could then very likely be Muslim. Now, I'm just throwing this position out there as sort of a teaser as I'm working through issues on that um, as we're going through this study. But this is becoming a, a more, I'm hearing more and more about this position and I'm getting more and more questions about pe- from people asking about that. I am very suspicious of it because, not, not because I haven't been taught that or that wasn't the position of people who I studied under at Dallas Seminary or other places, but because there are passages in the Scripture that to me are very troublesome in, trying, in coming to that conclusion. And one of, the, one of the issues that bothers me is that in order for the events in the tribulation period to unfold the way Revelation says they will unfold is there will be a rebuilt te- a temple on the Temple Mount, and the location of the temple is believed to be where the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock, is located on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. And if the Antichrist is the one who signs the peace treaty with Israel, according to Daniel chapter 9, that he enters into a covenant with the people, and that as part of that there is a recognition of of the Jews building or establishing a place of worship on the Temple Mount, I just don't see a Muslim doing that. I, I have heard an answer. I don't agree with the answer, but I've heard at least an attempt to answer this from those who want to argue for a Muslim antichrist. But we'll get into some of those details later. First thing we need to do, and that anyone needs to do in any kind of study, is to see what the text actually says. And then once we go through these passages, then we'll be able to uh, correctly evaluate these kinds of interpretations. So when we look at the map of Rome, we must realize that it is not just a, it is Europe-centered, but Europe was not all that was part of the Roman Empire. In fact, you have areas in the Balkans today that are, that are uh, uh, predominantly Muslim. So wrapping that up, you have the... Um, a lion with the uh, eagle's wings, a lopsided bear representing the media Persian Empire, the four-headed and four-winged leopard, and now the monstrous beast. The focus in Daniel 7 is on this fourth beast. And that is what the, the uh, whole focus is, not in its early manifestation, but in its later manifestation. And so in Daniel 7, 7, Daniel writes, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. 
dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. These are strong adjectives that are used here in the uh, in the in the <clears throat> Aramaic, emphasizing the the power of this animal. Dreadful, t- terrible, exceedingly strong. It is as if he is struggling to find the right words to dis- to uh, describe this, the power and the fear that is engendered by this fourth beast. It had huge iron teeth, he says, large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Now, those three words, devoured, crushed, and trampled, are all participles in the Hebrew, which indicates ongoing ongoing action. Trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had a ten horns. Now, a couple of other things to note in this passage is it brings out the fact that it has these these ten horns. Now, uh, one thing about that is that the ten horns weren't there historically. If you recognize that this beast is the Roman Empire, which is what would naturally flow in history, this is the Roman Empire, what were the ten horns in the Roman Empire? The horns represent power or kingdoms, but you have no ten nations in the historical manifestation of the Roman Empire to date. So this has to be future. And what that shows us is this is another one of those verses, like Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where there is a gap in the middle of a verse, a time gap in the middle of a verse. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is a passage that Jesus quoted in, in Luke when he stood up to read in the synagogue of Nazareth. And the first verse, Isaiah 61, 1, and the first half of Isaiah 61, 2, relate to what Jesus was to accomplish in the first advent. But the second half of the second verse is a second coming passage. Well, when Jesus stood up, he only read the first verse and a half, and then he stopped because the second half wasn't going to be fulfilled until the second coming. And so that shows that in these prophetic texts that that there's a telescoping of, of history in the text itself, even though there are time gaps. The reason that's important is because we believe that there are these time gaps, and part of this is what um, what is part of the rationale for having a, holding to a, a pre-tribulation, uh, pre-tribulation rapture. So you have a, the fourth beast that comes on the scene, devouring, expanding, controlling, crushing, trampling, and then sometime later it develops these ten horns. It doesn't develop the ten horns at the very beginning. So there's this gap that is glossed over in the way it's described uh, in the text. Now, as we look at that description, we ought to ask three questions. The first question is, what is distinct about the fourth kingdom? So you can just kind of jot these down, and I'll try to make sure we answer them when we come to the end. What's distinct about the fourth kingdom? The second question is, how did this expansion occur? And the third question is, since these ten kings of the fourth kingdom of Daniel 7 are yet future to our time, 2009, they were future at John's time, they're still future for us. Since these ten kings of the fourth kingdom of Daniel 7 are yet future to 2009, and we in the 21st century are still within the time period of the fourth kingdom, even though it is in a uh, dissolute state, dissolved state, um, we still should be able to discern whatever this man-made feature is, let's just call it X, and try to decide what it is. Okay, so we'll think about this when we go through these descriptions. What's distinct about the description here? The um, described as dreadful and terrible, uh, exceedingly strong, has enormous uh, iron teeth, devouring, crushing, trampling with its feet. But there's some other information that's added later in the chapter. As I stated earlier, this chapter describes the vision in the first 14 verses, 
And then in verse 15, Daniel is so emotionally overwhelmed by this that in verse 15 he, he writes, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I mean, he woke up with a spiritual hangover, and he was just con- uh, extremely concerned, I mean, and unsettled, worried. And, you know, if we've all had the experience probably of having some kind of a dream at night and we wake up and we're just a little agitated afterwards. We'll multiply that by about a 100. Because Daniel saw, remembered every detail of this kind of vision. And so uh, in, he, he uh, is going to get it, receive an explanation and he says in verse 16, I came near to one of those who stood by. So he looks around. There's an angel in the room. And he's going to go to the angel in order to get an interpretation that God doesn't just leave us on our own to try to generate meaning from what he reveals by uh, just osmosis or gazing at our navel or trying to put it together by some other means. God is going to provide someone, in this case an angel, to explain exactly what he means. It's not a guessing game. And so starting in verse um, verse 17, the angels begin to uh, teach the interpretation of the vision to Daniel. And in verse 19 he writes, uh, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was exceeding, uh, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, and now he adds another element, its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. What, what's different about this particular, uh, t- particular beast? Unlike the other beasts, which can be identified because they have enough of the characteristics of the lion, the bear, and the leopard to be identified as such, but unlike them, this beast has certain manufactured human qualities. There's a there's bronze and there's iron. These have to be refined. There is, uh, and I would th- think that this implies something about technology, something about the technological development that man brings to this particular. Uh, manifestation of the empire that makes it even more bestial than it would otherwise have been. Now, we don't know what that is. I'm not going to say you know, it's computers or the Internet or anything, but there, there's something about the technology of man that makes it even more uh, bestial and more powerful. And perhaps in its final manifestation, the revived Roman Empire is much more deadly and destructive than the old Roman Empire was because simply of the technology of the uh, weapon systems that we have uh, for warfare, uh, for warfare today. So the interpreting angel goes on to explain this in verse uh, 20, states in the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up after it, see, in verse, I had skipped over this, but in verse 8, um, Daniel said, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn. So you start off with ten horns, and then out of that ten-nation confederacy, the ten horns, another horn, a little one, which would be an eleventh horn, comes up among them, before whom three of the first horns are plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking uh, pompous words. And so the explanation of verse 20, we have the ten horns were on its head, the other horn which came up, that's the little horn, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Um, Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. It is this metal addition, the bronze and the iron, that I believe gives it that ability to conquer the whole earth. This isn't just a kingdom in of, of, of Europe. The bl- blend that we see 
in the uh, statue that the legs of iron represented the Roman Empire and then the feet, which would be the ankles and the feet of, of, of a mixture of iron and clay. Iron would be elements from the old Roman Empire. Clay would be new elements. That could include uh, nations in the Western Hemisphere, obviously, that uh, the United States would be part of that, South America, Canada, these other nations that were not in the old Roman Empire would be part of that clay that made up the mixture of the clay and iron of those uh, of the of the feet of the statue. So that's this this final form, and it devours the whole earth. So he's going to be able to extend his control to a true global empire. Now that's what we'll see in Revelation 13, and it occurs only in the second half of the tribulation. So all of the things that we witness on the scene today simply move us in that direction. We have more and more uh, of a global push in the world because of technology, because of the Internet. Uh, we know what is going on all over the world very, very rapidly. Uh, in fact, there's an article in uh, the current issue of Christianity Today that talks about how most churches in America are more international than any church ever hoped to be a hundred years ago, because they have one. And one of the reasons is because they have internet ministries. They put material out on the internet, and that material is used by uh, people in churches all over the world. And that's true for us. We have all of our material up on the uh, Dean Bible Ministry site, and from the very beginning. Uh, 10, 10, 11 years ago now, when we first began to uh, put material up on the Internet, we were receiving tape orders from people in Europe, people in the Philippines, people in South America, people in uh, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, India. Uh, we've had people come to this, this uh, church at times who have visited because they were living somewhere, or that's where they were from, somewhere around the world. There was a couple here not long ago this last year who was from um, from India, and they watched uh, live streaming, and they were sent here for a period of two or three months. Uh, his business uh, sent him over here, and so they were here, and they visited Bible class for uh, several weeks before they went back uh, went back home. And so we have an international ministry just because of the uh, just because of the Internet. So we live in a global environment unlike anything we could imagine. And as technology continues to go forward, uh, we become more and more a global community, whether we like it or not, or no matter how much we may uh, dislike all the components of internationalism and the U.N. and everything else, there is this just inexorable movement in that direction that we just are unable to stop. It is the movement of the kingdom of man trying to establish itself uh, under the um, with the movement of, I believe, Satan in the background. I'm not saying technology is from Satan. I'm saying that he uses all of that because he's pushing towards his ultimate goal, which is to establish his kingdom uh, on the earth. In Daniel 7.24, we read that the ten horns represent ten kings who shall arise out from this kingdom. And so that comes in the future. It hasn't happened yet. It comes at some time in the future, and these ten horns represent ten kings or ten kingdoms. Now, you'll find that people who are preterists or people who have been influenced by uh, liberal a Protestant theology don't want to interpret any of this literally, and so they try to come up with some sort of explanation of how this occurred in the past. But nothing in the past fits this. You can't try to impose these ten horns on anything that occurred in either the final stages of the of the Greek Empire or in the stages of the of the Roman Empire. There are uh, there's nothing in history where you see ten kings reigning simultaneously in a confederacy. These aren't ten successive kings. These are ten kings at the same time. Now, verse 23 comes back to bring up this question uh, about the uniqueness of this kingdom. 
and points out that another, after you have these ten kings that come up from the kingdom, so apparently in the chronology, first of all, there is this movement towards a confederation, an association of of the of the the, the ten ten kingdoms or kings, and then after that develops, which I believe probably occurs in the period between the tribula- the rapture and the tribulation, and may still be continuing after the uh, Daniel's 70th week of the tribulation begins. And then we're told that another king rises up after them. This is the Antichrist. The Antichrist is not seen, not known, not identified prior to the rapture. He doesn't come on the scene uh, where, where he can be identified as such until after the rapture. Now, so he may be on the scene in some way before the rapture, but nobody's going to be able to identify him. So don't get suckered by somebody who's going to um, uh, say that, well, that mark on Gorbachev's forehead was the mark of the beast, or, you know, they also said Reagan had to be the Antichrist because Ronald Wilson, Reagan has six letters in each of the names, and so that's 666. And then there was another rationale for Bill Clinton and another rationale people had for George Bush. I mean, it depends on which side of the political aisle you are, you're on, but there's always somebody who's trying to make the president be the Antichrist. And I don't think that – I know from Scripture that none of us – are going to know who the Antichrist is because we're not to be looking for the Antichrist. We're to be looking for the return of Jesus Christ in the air, and the Antichrist isn't revealed until until after that. So the person that is referred to here is the one that rises after them is the little horn that's mentioned back in Daniel 7, verse 8. And he is... Arrogant. Arrogance is the prime characteristic of the Antichrist, but arrogance can camouflage itself in pseudo-humility that will deceive the masses. And this is what is so dangerous about the Antichrist. In fact, Jesus said that, that the Antichrist is going to be so deceptive that if possible, he would deceive even the elect. So he is going to have an ability to lie and to manipulate and to deceive that is going to just get past everybody. He is going to be extremely uh, manipulative. Verse uh, Daniel 7.25 states, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. So he is going to be anti-God anti-Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is going to, the idea of pompous words indicates that he is, he ignores God. He's like the fool who said in his heart, there is no God. He may give lip service to religion. He may talk about God, but he is going to be hostile to the God of the Bible. Uh, This is the same kind of thing that we see applied to the the first beast in Revelation 13.1. When John saw the beast rising up out of the sea, he had seven heads, and on his heads a blasphemous name, indicating that at the very core of their character there is this hostility toward God. And that is one thing we have to understand, is the basic orientation of the kingdom of man is towards self-sufficiency apart from God. That the, the kingdom of man, in all of its different manifestations, all of its different nations, all of its different polities, including and up to the United States of America, its orientation is to solve man's problems apart from God, that government can be the ultimate solution. And even though this nation started where the men understood that that wasn't true, And as President Reagan pointed out in one of his more famous lines, that government wasn't the solution to the problem, government was the problem. Nevertheless, the inexorable move of of this nation has been towards uh, accruing more and more power into the hands of the federal government, as opposed to limiting the powers of the federal government according to the Constitution to those that are enumerated in the Constitution and that all other powers, all other authority was to belong to the states, which would secure uh, a limited 
federal government. And they, the founders understood that the big enemy to liberty, the major enemy to liberty, was, was government. But we've lost that. We live in an era today where people believe that the purpose of government is to solve problems. And that's how the Antichrist is going to be. Uh, that is one of the characteristics. And we're going to have a, the government is going to be the solution to all man's problems. And as the, the, the world becomes more and more globalized and the problems uh, become more international in their scope, if you just think about the current financial uh, crisis that the world is in, it affects every nation. No nation is without an impact. We are very fortunate that we live in uh, in the United States as opposed to many other nations where it's, it's, the conditions are much, 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 much worse, just, just horrible. And we not only live in the United States, but we live in Texas, which is triply blessed, and we live in Houston, which is quadruply blessed. So we are very, very fortunate. But there can be some things that happen that, that even living uh, here, uh, we will experience things that could be much, much uh, worse than, than they are. And we just need to thank God that we have what we have and be very, very grateful for that. But the orientation with the final form of the kingdom is to set up government that is completely independent from God, promising to the world to provide only that which God can provide. This is the culmination of the major battle between Satan and God and between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, the battle between Babylon and Jerusalem, which goes back to the early chapters of Genesis. That's why those early chapters are so important to understand. You can't mythologize those without destroying the end of the Bible. You destroy the beginning and you destroy the end. You destroy everything in between. Now, we've also seen that this kingdom is depicted in Revelation chapter 17. And there we have another image of the kingdom as the great harlot who sits on many waters. The waters represent the nations. And so the great harlot represents the, the final form of the kingdom over all the nations of the earth. And so God is going to judge that final form of the kingdom. In verse uh, 2, Revelation 17, this, this is the harlot of whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. Those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And John says, He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. This ties it all together. It is that final form of the Antichrist kingdom and it's interesting and I'll show you some of these uh, depictions later but in in um, Roman mythology there was a goddess Europa who rode a bull and that has been taken over and is depicted on the back of several uh euro coins where you see the image of the woman riding the beast and that is one of the symbols of the goddess Europa that has been adopted by the uh the EU now, is the EU uh, the final form of this ten-nation confederacy? No, I forget how many nations are in there now, but I think it is a, a precursor, a predecessor to the kind of thing that we'll see the Antichrist uh, pull together. Skipping on in the in the 12th uh, verse of Revelation 17, John said, I, He carried me away in the, in the Spirit into a wilderness, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, again, having seven horns and ten heads. So we see the arrogant, anti-God manifestation of of the kingdom. Now, one thing I want to point out is a comparison that we see between Daniel 7.25 and Revelation 17.25. Daniel 7.25, speaking of the little horn, the Antichrist, says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Second, he shall persecute the saints of the Most High. The saint is simply a term for believer. It could be Jews. It could be tribulation saints. It could be church-age believers, or it could be Old Testament saints. The word doesn't indicate one dispensation over another. Since this is going to occur in the tribulation period, this is a uh, reference to tribulation saints, 
and many of those will be Jews, the vast majority perhaps. Well, not the vast majority, but the vast majority uh, or a large number of believers will be Jews. So, will persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. He will come along and try to uh, change the calendar. This was seen in the time of the French Revolution when they tried to go to a 10-day week instead of a 7-day week. To, to change this, the, the structure of time. And man in his arrogance thinks that he can, can mess with these built-in um, uh, movements that God set up within uh, the creation. And then finally, then the saints shall be given into his hand, indicating a time of incredible uh, persecution against believers for a time times and a half a time, and that again indicates a three and a half year period as we'll see in a few minutes. A time represents a year, times is two years and a half a time, so that comes to three and a half years. Daniel 7.25, he shall speak pompous uh, words against the Most High, persecute the saints, and change the times. We've already gone through that. Verse 26, but the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion. So at the end there is going to be a judgment on him. So we see that the little horn, let me back this up, the little horn in Daniel 7 is clearly the same as the beast in Revelation chapter 13. So we'll just do a little comparison here between the uh, little horn and the beast. In Daniel 7, 8, we have the introduction of this little horn who comes up among the ten horns. And then in uh, Revelation 17, 12, we see that the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, uh, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Then in Daniel 7.25, authority will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And when we compare that kind of a chronological marker to Revelation 12.6 and 14, we see that time, times, and a half a time equals 1,260 days are three and a half years. Let me read those references to you. Revelation 12, 6. This refers to the fleeing of Israel into the wilderness during the second half of the tribulation period. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So when you compare that with verse 14, which states, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. So 1,260 days equals a time, times, and a half a time. And this is equivalent to the last period of the tribulation period. When you divide 1,260 by 30, then you come up with uh, three and a half years. That would be 42 months as well. And those terms are all used interchangeably to describe these different time periods uh, in, the, in the tribulation. For example, back in uh, Revelation 11, verse 2, the uh, holy city would be trod underfoot by the Gentiles for 42 months. That's that half-year that's a half-year period. Then, when you compare Daniel 7.25 with Revelation 13.5, the beast is given his authority to, uh, to exercise his authority for 42 months. 42 months equals a time times and a half a time. So the little horn, then, is waging war against the saints in 7.21, and in 13.7 he is 
given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. So we had the same focus, the same agenda. Uh, in Daniel 7, 11, and 26, God will interrupt the reign of the little horn in order to establish his kingdom. This is described in uh, verses 11, 7, 11, and 7, 26. And then in Revelation 19, uh, 19 and 20, uh, God will also interrupt the reign of the Antichrist when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his eternal kingdom. So the conclusion is the little horn in Daniel must be identified as the first beast of Revelation. So summary. What do we learn about the beast or the little horn in Daniel 7? First of all, he rises to power from within the fourth empire. It's an empire made up of ten nations, a revival of the Roman Empire, and he comes up after this ten-nation confederacy has come together. When That's the second point. The, when, he come, when he arises, the ten kings are already in place. Third, there is some unique quality about him that's indicated in uh, Daniel 7, verse 28. There's a unique quality about him, and he is able to uh, bring people uh, together. And this is what really concerns Daniel, and his thoughts are very troubled um, as he thinks about this, the, this beast. Um, Fourth, he's arrogant, challenges the Most High with greater boastful words, 7.8, 7.11, and 7.20. He persecutes the tribulation saints, number, point number five, and he will pursue the Israel, the woman, into the wilderness. In Revelation 13, 7 and 8, he's given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. And this is the same thing that we see in uh, the description of, of the Antichrist, is that he takes power over the whole world. The fourth beast takes power over the whole world in, um, in Daniel chapter 7. Seventh point, Revelation thirteen sixteen to 18, he forces everyone through the second beast, forces everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. So this is going to show his economic control, and now with technology we can see how that can take place. Uh, and we've seen that for at least 30 years. I remember seeing a... Uh, cover of, I think it was Moody Monthly back in the uh, early 80s, and it had a picture of, of uh, somebody coming out of the grocery store, and they had a um, UPS code stamped on their forehead. And it used to be, I don't know, I've got a bottle of Ozarka here. Maybe I can show you. Yeah, yeah the, the barcode on, a, on, on most UPS is built around the barcode of 666. It's, a, it's two very narrow the narrowest are the parallel lines, and you'll see that the first number, the middle number, and the last number on almost every UPS code is that number. It's a 6. So the, the base for these UPS codes is a 666. Well, that really got a lot of Christians excited back when, when that was first observed. Um, but this is going to go deeper than that. We'll look at this passage in detail, but the mark on the hand, I think, is more like a tattoo or it could be an embedded chip. There, this technology is available today that uh, identifies who everybody is, can have all the information possible, everything to know about you, and so you can't buy or sell or do anything without this mark. But it's not the kind of mark that it just, you can just accidentally take. I think that there will be a an oath, a religious oath of allegiance that is associated with it, and it will be clear to those who take it that they are aligning themselves with the Antichrist over against God. So people are not going to be taking this by mistake and go, oops, I'm really a Christian. I didn't want that. 
let's wash it off. No, that's not going to happen. It is the, it's it's the kind of thing that people will knowingly enter into. Not going to be uh, not going to be an accident. Um, eighth, he gains control of the world for only three and a half years. The first three and a half years is his rise to power, and then he tries to consolidate it during the second half of the tribulation in those three and a half years. And his the war, the terror that occurs during that time is so great that Jesus said that if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. Mankind would truly destroy itself if it, if Jesus Christ did not return. So this is what we learn about the uh, beast, the little horn. And next time we'll come back and we will look at how his his kingdom is going to be destroyed by God by the uh, vision that occurs the ancient of days and the judgment occurs in the establishment of that kingdom before we go on to some other chapters uh, in Daniel. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at these uh, passages, to come to an understanding of this flow, direction of history, to see how this uh, fits, and even today and in other periods of history before we can see these same kinds of uh, uh, manifestations take place of those kings and kingdoms that seek to establish themselves as as the be-all and end-all of, of, of human government and human power. Father, we're thankful that we have a hope in Jesus Christ and that we look forward to him returning and that he will return, we hope, soon, and that we will be taken to be with him. And, Father, we're so thankful for your grace, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.